Well, good morning, everyone. If you want to uh, grab that cup of coffee and uh, head back to your seat, uh, we'll begin with our with the message for this morning. Adam. Well, good morning again. For those of you that I have not met, uh, my name is Sam Huggard. So I'm the person Josh referred to as being voted on today. I was talking to Bjorn Anderson. He said he drove up to Dixville Notch and the early returns are already in and I'm losing to the independent. So all joking aside, um, this is an interesting and a really special day in the life of this church. Uh, part of the way that we in the Evangelical Free Church of America uh, kind of discern God's leading is through this process of a congregational vote. And so let me just kind of pause, first of all, to say what we're doing today is different than what we do uh, when it comes to voting on our political leaders. There's a lot of similarities, but there really is a pretty big difference here. What we believe is that God actually speaks through his people in the church. So it's not just that we all are wanting our way to, to win through the voting. What we're trusting is that God is speaking as we cast a vote. And so today, as you all vote uh, for a pastor for the future of this church, prayerfully trust the fact that God is actually speaking through you. So this is a spiritual process that this church is engaged in, and uh, I look forward to seeing uh, how it pans out. <laughs> so that said, let's uh, dive into our, our message for this morning. Uh, we've been in the book of Ephesians uh, for quite a few weeks now, and we are considering uh, this theme, uh, seeing reality, Christ, the church, and the cosmos. And uh, the, the idea is, is that Ephesians is like a set of glasses. Uh, Paul is writing to followers of Christ because he wants us to be able to see reality. Because, apart from Christ, we don't see reality correctly, even if we think we do. And so Ephesians helps us to see Christ for who he is. Helps us to see the church for what the church actually is, and, and then the whole world, the whole universe, for what God intends to do uh, in the world that he has made. Uh, a number of us have spoken already. Um, myself, uh, Bjorn spoke, reminded us from Ephesians 1 how blessed we are in Christ. Uh, Bjorn also mentioned that he got stuck with uh, preaching the predestination passage, that I stuck him with that one, that is true. Uh, Brendan uh, also shared and shared about how bad things are apart from Christ. We, we need to see the bad news if we can appreciate the good news. And Brendan also commented that I you know, stuck him with the, the sin passage uh, in this uh, letter. So lest you think I only hand off the bad text to other people, uh, this morning we're considering divisions in the church based around circumcision. All right, so that's not a real, real uh, easy topic. So we're gonna I'm going to read this, and you're going to hear in this passage, Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, and we're going to consider this morning what that's all about. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 23. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. 
You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been brought, now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Will you join me in prayer? Uh, Lord, we sang earlier that you would uh, open up uh, the eyes of our hearts. You'd help us to see you rightly. Lord, that we would see uh, who you are and how you're leading us uh, into the world with your heart. And so, God, I echo that prayer now. I pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes. Uh, God, I pray that we would be able to see rightly uh, who we are, that, that apart from you, Lord, we really are outsiders to you, to your purposes, to your love, to your goodness, to your grace. But in Christ, Lord, uh, it could not be better. Help us to understand the privilege we have of being united with Jesus. Help us to understand uh, how you've made us to be uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, how this new community uh, really is uh, what you are doing here in this world and what we have to offer others in this world. So Lord, please open our eyes this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like you to think with me uh, of a time that you felt like an outsider. Uh, maybe for you, it was a, a time when you moved to a new town. Maybe you moved and didn't know anybody else there, had to figure out uh, you know, where the the grocery store was, the hardware store, and you go in, you don't know anybody, and you just felt like an outsider in the new community. Or maybe think back to being in school, or for those of you that are still in school, maybe think about going to a new school. Maybe you graduated to the high school, and you went in as a freshman, and everything seemed new. A new layout, new people, new teachers, and you're a little unsure, what are the rules here? What's the lay of the land? Uh, or maybe um, it wasn't being a new, going to a new school. Maybe you've been at school for a while, but you felt like an outsider because you're just not part of the group you want to be part of, whether it was a sports team or a certain group of friends. You feel like you were on the outside of the group looking in. I think we've all been there at some point feeling like an outsider looking in. I remember one of the more potent experiences I had of this was when my wife and I uh, went to Ukraine for a month uh, we adopted our oldest child from Ukraine, and uh, we lived there for a month, 
And we did our best to like, learn language ahead of time, but our language was <laughs> pretty lacking. It's so living there for a month, not knowing the language, trying to interact with people, made that I feel like an outsider. I'd go to a restaurant and hear people laughing around me, had no idea what they're laughing at. Sometimes it was me uh, trying to order my food. Um, we'd go into a town and I didn't understand even the rules of the road. Uh, I felt like an outsider in this community that I was not part of. I think all of us have had some type of that experience. And sometimes we can identify the reasons why we feel like an outsider, whether it's a new location or being around a, a group of people that doesn't really want us there. But other times we have this feeling and can't identify why. Uh, back in 2020, um, Cigna did a study on loneliness in our culture. And they, they were looking at loneliness as a public health crisis. And back in 2020, so prior to the chaos of the past two or three years, um, this is the response they got. 50% of respondents on the survey reported feeling sometimes or always alone. 50% reported feeling sometimes or always alone, kind of like on the outside looking in. That number jumped up to 61% for people under the age of 30, feeling sometimes or always alone. And that experience has doubled in the past 50 years. Isn't that amazing? In the past 50 years, uh, people s report a far greater sense of loneliness in our culture than ever before. That we are more technologically advanced and supposedly connected technologically, yet we feel more alone than ever. We feel like we're on the outside looking in. Now, the scripture passage we come to today gets at the heart of this issue of feeling like you're on the outside looking in. And yes, it has a very specific historical uh, context, the Jew-Gentile insider-outsider divide, but really the principle here is very much applicable to us today. The problem of the insider-outsider divide. So first today, I want to understand uh, the specific historical context, the Jew-Gentile insider-outsider divide. Then we're going to switch and look at the timeless principle of the insider-outsider problem. And then look at the solution that Christ offers. So let's first consider the, uh, the Jew-Gentile insider-outsider divide. The first two verses of our passage, verse 11 and 13, let me read them again. Uh, Paul wrote, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. The New Testament church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And this may not seem to be a big deal to us, but it was a massive deal to them. I mean, most of the letters in the New Testament scriptures somehow touch upon this issue, that Jews and Gentiles have been thrust together in this new community of faith. And they're having to learn to work things out. Because given their historical situation, they were not used to being part of the same community. The Jew-Gentile divide was very volatile. There was a lot of tension in these churches around this dividing line. Now, to understand the history, 
if you look back at the uh, scriptures, you realize God had called the Israelite people to be a distinct community. God first called Abraham. He called him to move, uh, to leave his homeland and move to the land of Israel. And as he journeyed there, God promised to be his God and that he would be with him. And then God gave him a specific covenant, a sign of him being his. It was the covenant of circumcision. And it sounds, again, strange to us, but this was a tangible reminder to God's people that they were set apart, different, distinct from the other nations, that God wanted them to know that they were his and they were to live his way of life. So in a very intimate way, God is reminding his people that they are distinct, set apart. And that's not the only way that the Israelites were distinct, though circumcision kind of became the big um, uh, code. They were circumcised and uncircumcised. But it meant more than just the physical procedure. The Israelites were set apart, distinct, also by God's law. The Ten Commandments guided their way of life, different than the other nations around them. They were to live this way, unlike the other nations. There was the keeping of the Sabbath. While everyone else around them worked seven days a week, they set aside this one day. Say, we have a God who cares for us. We're going to trust him. The Sabbath was a way they were distinct, set apart. They had yearly festivals where they would gather for either a feast or a fast. And these festivals were distinct from the other nations. Another way they were showing God is our God, we are his people. And then when they finally came into the land and they built the temple, the temple itself, in its architecture, revealed this principle of distinction. I think I got a couple slides here. I'm gonna take a look at the temple. Eh, it's a little grainy. Don't worry, the words mean nothing, so you don't have to read those words, all right? Uh, you can see around the temple here, there's the outer courtyard. Anybody here know what that courtyard's called? I see you're all eager. You don't need to know, actually. I'll tell you. It's the court of the Gentiles, all right? If you're not a Jewish person, you are welcome to come to the temple to the outer court. The outside courtyard is the Gentile court. Then you have the large wall, and if you pass through the doors, the, inner, uh, the, uh, the first courtyard inside, actually, you can go to the next uh, slide. It's a little easier to see. A court of the Gentiles is exterior. Then the, um, the uh, where it says court of Israel, whoever made this one actually was trying to nicen it up because that's actually called the court of women. So if you are an Israelite woman, you're welcome to go that far. But inside is then the court of men. And then inside that is the court of priests. And inside the court of priests is the Holy of Holies, where once a year a priest was allowed to enter. But they would tie a rope around him. In case he entered inappropriately and he died in God's presence, they could pull him back out without someone else entering. So you see the whole layered series of distinction that was set up in temple worship. And especially focus on the court of Gentiles. If you were a Gentile person, that had been your experience, that uh, the Jewish people say, hey, you know, why don't you come to temple with me? Stay out here. Uh, it's not exactly uh, a real welcoming environment. And now these people are thrust together. Gentiles and Jews, men and women, all brought together in worship. No more of this going on. That doesn't just go away. That's been their history, and that history continues uh, in the church. 
Now, especially uh, when you understand how the Israelite people had taken it even further. Um, on the wall of the court of the Gentiles, there was an inscription that had been etched there. And they recently discovered some of this in, in archaeology. Here was the inscription on, on the wall. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Welcome to church. <laughs> so Paul clearly has this in mind, this wall of hostility when you come to worship. That had been their experience. And Paul is saying things have changed in Jesus. But man, when you look at the New Testament letters, uh, this Jew-Gentile issue is a major issue ongoing in the life of the church. Paul himself uh, really had to deal with this. Um, that the Jewish people had tended to use their place of nearness to God, their place of distinction and privilege as a means to bolster their own self-importance and look down on Gentiles around them. Uh, in Philippians 3, 5-6, through 6, Paul describes himself this way. He said, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. That's what you're supposed to do. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. You see what Paul's saying? I was really good at living distinct. I was really good at following God's laws. And because I was so good at it, I felt superior. And then I persecuted those that I thought were my enemy. So his um, embracing of the distinction that God had called the Israelites to did not achieve the heart that God desired. God had ordained the distinction. He had not ordained the arrogance. He had not ordained the, the hostility. And so Paul had become arrogant and hostile in his heart. Ultimately, this is what led him to Christ, is he realized he was opposing Jesus himself when he thought he was actually doing God a favor by persecuting the church. This Jew-Gentile divide, it continued for quite some time in the church. And we might think today, boy, glad, that, glad that's over. You know, glad we don't have to deal with the Jew-Gentile issue here. You know, glad we're not you know, fighting over circumcision. Oh, and I am glad about that. But oh man, this heart continues. There's a timeless issue going on here of the insider-outsider divide. Uh, uh, Kyle Snodgrass is a, uh, wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians. And he says this in his commentary, that the mention of circumcision, uncircumcision, blood, and Israel all seem foreign, if not barbaric, and are of little, import, little, little relevance for us. But the problems described continue to be deeply rooted human problems that vex us all. Alienation, division, name-calling, separation from God and his purposes, and hopelessness. As long as these problems continue, people will know loneliness, fracture, lack of trust, and discouragement. So when you see Jew-Gentile or uncircumcised circumcised in the Bible, have this thought in your head. That's code for differences that divide. 
that's code for my opposite, my ideological other. So if you're a Red Sox fan, who are you not a fan of? The Yankees, that's correct. All right, so there's always an other. And that gets played out in many ways, right? Republican, Democrat. Uh, this last season, mask, no mask. These differences get played out. There's always people that are like you and ideologically similar and those that are ideologically opposed. And in our world, our differences regularly divide us. And here's why. Our differences don't have to divide us. Just because we have difference does not necessitate division. God wanted distinction, but love. But we, have, we almost always treat distinction as a reason to divide. And this is because we tend to identify ourselves based on our differences. Because remember, we have this longing to belong. We have this need for identity. And so we establish groups with values and codes and standards. And this inherently creates insiders and outsiders. We can't escape the dilemma no matter how hard we try. We long to be insiders. We long to belong, to be in a community and have this great sense of identity within a community. But when we establish these values, we almost always then exclude those who don't share the values. And this creates tension, friction, hostility, and violence, and it never truly gives us the belonging and the identity we desire. But what are we to do? I mean, we can't live apart from having values and standards and groups. So how can we have distinction and yet not have arrogance and hostility? How can we be drawn to the inside and yet not exclude those on the outside? The insider-outsider solution. I mean, this is a striking passage. When we look at what Christ has done, it's a solution like nothing else in this world. I mean, everyone wants to solve this problem. We want to create a world where people can love those that are different than them. We want this. We just <laughs> can't seem to get there. I mean, right now, e there are many in our world that try very hard to be as inclusive as possible. And the great irony is they end up excluding those that aren't as inclusive as them. We just can't get our, our hands around this. How, how, how do we do it? Ephesians 2, 14-16, Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in, in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. I want to notice uh, one overarching principle and then two ways it's lived out. He says here, Christ himself has brought us peace. And uh, many of the other translations say Christ is our peace. Christ himself is our peace. It's not just that Christ has done something to broker a peace treaty. It's saying that in the person of Jesus, peace has entered the world. That Jesus is the peace. And 
we say, well, what has he done to create peace? And there's two things in particular we need to look at. First, it says that Jesus broke down the wall of hostility. Now remember the, wall, the inscription on the, on the wall of the court of the Gentiles. I mean, that's a hostile statement if there ever was one. I, I'm confident Paul has that in mind as he's writing here. And he's saying that Christ has, has broke this wall down. And Christ has always been about breaking down barriers. When you look at his ministry, he's constantly doing things that kind of poke this principle of distinctions that create arrogance and division. I mean, you see him ministering to a Samaritan woman. People say, why, why are you ministering to her? Yet he crosses these cultural barriers to minister to her. We see him healing on a Sabbath day. Why then? Couldn't you wait a day, Jesus? Oh, he could have. But he chose to minister then because he's, he's poking this. He's crossing a barrier. Who he ministers to, when he ministers, how he ministers, there's always this crossing of a barrier to be able to love the outsider. And Jesus has been about this from the beginning. But ultimately, the way this is accomplished, it's in his cross. Paul says that, that in his body, on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility. Now, it goes on to say this. He did this by abolishing the law. I think the New Living Translation says, by ending the system of law. It's actually not a great translation. Um, it really, it's, ab it's abolishing the law. Now, that does not mean he ended it in that, in that it, the laws no longer apply. Clearly, God's laws are for our good. God's laws show us how life should be lived. God's law is a very, very good thing. But what Jesus ended in his death on the cross, is how we tend to use the law, and then what the law says about us. Because here's how we tend to use the law. We tend to use the law to compare ourselves to others, not to God. I tend to pick parts of the law that I'm pretty good at keeping, and wonder why others can't keep it like me. While others will take parts of the law they're better at keeping, and wonder why I can't keep it like they do. I mean, just think of all the things God has told, told us in his word. God tells us to care for the poor, God tells us to be sexually pure. God emphasizes justice for the oppressed. God emphasizes um, a, a genuineness and authenticity in worship. And I find that everyone is strong in some areas and weak in others. And we emphasize our area of law keeping and emphasize others' area, areas of law breaking. So Jesus says in his cross, no one's kept the law. If you think you've kept the law, keep reading. Just read through the scriptures and see how God calls us to live. And if we're, we read honestly, we realize all of us have fallen short in some way. And so in the cross, Jesus says, you all have broken the law. There's one person who hasn't. The one person who is the ultimate insider. Jesus Christ has taken on himself the fate of the outsider. On penalty of death, you should not pass. And Jesus says, I'll take that. On the cross, he died in our place. And then the consequences for not keeping the law are placed upon him. And so he breaks down the wall saying, all, all are welcome to come to me through one door. And that door is Jesus. All who come through Jesus Christ have access to God. So Jesus is telling Jews who were near to God because they had his instructions and Gentiles who were far away because they didn't, you both are lawbreakers and you both need a solution. And that one solution is Jesus Christ. 
Now, when Jews and Gentiles realize that neither one of them can claim superiority, but both of them have to come through Jesus' cross, it creates humility. There's only one way, and we all are in need of that one way. And so Jesus breaks down the wall of hostility by eliminating any kind of comparison based on the law. We need that today. We still do this. We still compare ourselves, individuals and groups, based on laws, standards of righteousness. And Jesus says, we all need a Savior. And that Savior has been given to all. So first, Jesus broke down the wall of hostility in his death on the cross. Secondly, he created a new humanity. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, it says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jew and Gentile into one people. And then it goes on to say, He made peace between Jew and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. So it's not just that we're forgiven and now stuck together. And I think sometimes that's how it practically plays out. We're forgiven but stuck together in Christian community. And I'm thankful we're forgiven individually, but God's doing more than that. He's giving us a way to actually relate together in reconciled relationships. So he didn't want Jew and Gentile just to be stuck together in the church and have to put up with it. He's creating a new humanity. He's creating followers of Christ. And now, the, the distinctions, the differences aren't eliminated. I mean, there were still Jews and Gentiles, still male and female. Matter of fact, when we look at the future in the book of Revelation, it says around the throne, there's gonna be people from every tongue, tribe, nation praising Jesus. The differences are still there. But we're no longer identifying ourselves primarily based on those differences. See, Jesus gives us a greater identity, an identity that, that comes over every difference we have. And the identity he gives us is people who have been saved by his cross. And, and Paul goes on to play this out. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, he's listing all the different aspects of our identity. He says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles, are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Three things here. He says, if you've come through uh, uh, in the wall of hostility, through the door of Jesus Christ, whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, that means you are a citizen of Christ's kingdom. That's your identity. All who come through that door are now citizens of a kingdom that is over all and will never end. So no current national citizenship should compare. Well, we're still citizens of nations, but that's not our ultimate identity. Our ultimate identity is part of Christ's kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. We're citizens together, Jew, Gentile, all nations of the world brought through Christ. Secondly, we're members of God's family. I mean, we have a deep longing for a family, family that is loving and secure, a place of belonging and identity. And none of our earthly families are meant to be that ultimate family. 
They're meant to point us to it. And Jesus is saying, if you've come t- through the door of me into, into uh, the temple, he's saying that you're part of the family, whether you're single or married, whether you have kids or don't. If you are coming through Jesus Christ, you are part of an eternal family. You belong, and you always will. And then thirdly, he says, if you've come through Christ, you are a member of the holy temple. He says, together, we are Christ's temple. Not individually, together, we are the temple of God. Like Each of us are a brick composing this great dwelling where God himself lives by his spirit. Together, the temple of God. We are citizens, members of God's family, and together, a holy temple. I mean, talk about like a a large identity that we've been given, far greater than any Jew-Gentile kind of identity, far better than that identity. As we, as we walk towards the communion table this morning, uh, I want to end really with an invitation, uh, two invitations, to you who are followers of Christ first. Um, I want us to look at verse 11. I don't think I have it in the, uh, on the screen. I'll read it to you. Paul writes, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. Now, why does he remind them of that? That's a very painful memory. Don't forget, you you once weren't wanted in the community. It almost seems cruel that Paul is saying this. Why would Paul remind them of this painful past? Well, I think it's because we as human beings, once we get on the inside, tend to use our position to then exclude others. And he's saying, remember what it felt like to be excluded. Remember when you were an outsider. And guess what? We all, at one point, were outsiders. No one's born into the kingdom of God as through their natural birth. We, no one starts off as a child of God. At one point, we were all outsiders to God's family. And he's saying that Christ has brought us near. Um, I got a couple slides that I want to put up here. I, th- I think this is how it tends to work out. That when we first come to Christ, there tends to be this great gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done to bring us into his family. But over time, it's very, very easy for that place of privilege to almost become a place of superiority and to think of ourselves in the church as being separate and over those that are not the church, the world. Now, the scripture is very clear. There is distinction. Christ calls his church to be salt and light, distinct from the world around us, right? But this is how Israel lived it out in their distinction, separate and superior. Instead, I think this is how the scriptures more correctly would have us view the distinction. That God loves this whole world. He has made all human beings in his image. Every single person has been made in the image of God. Every single person is is part of God's creation community, ourselves included. We're part of that community, made by God, loved by God. But through Jesus Christ, God is welcoming us into the redeemed community, the family of God. This is the family that will endure forever. But you notice this community is still part of creation community. We're we're, We're still on the ship, so to speak. What happens in this world affects us too. And so we're to be engaged, loving the community around us. Really, this community just simply recognizes we've heard the call of the Father to come home. And we want others to hear that call too. And so the 
redeemed community does not find itself separate, but engaged in creation community, calling others to come home to the Father through Jesus the Son. This has been helpful for me to think about how we maintain our distinction, because God does call us to live a certain way as Christians. He calls us to believe in some certain truths. We are distinct, yet we're not superior. It's been famously said that what Christians are are beggars who are telling other beggars where to find bread. That's who we are, people who have heard the call of the Father to come home through the Son. So for those of you who are followers of Christ, don't forget that at one point you were outsiders and God has called you home. And as you look to others who are outside the faith, um, God has you here for a purpose, in your jobs, in your neighborhoods, in your schools. He is making his appeal to the world through you. And that appeal is come home. Come be part of the family for which you were created. So when we come together in our worship gatherings, we need to be always looking for the outsider. Who here is new to the community that God wants us to bring in? In our community groups, you know, we're always trying to create space to bring others in because we want outsiders to become insiders in this community. That's why God has us here. I'm going to finish this point here with just a quote from uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, she wrote an article which has been very intriguing and kind of convicting for me called Five Reasons why I, why I Don't Sit With My Husband at Church, which is interesting. And I'm not saying to follow her exact practice, but listen to what she says here. She said, every week people wander into our churches for the first time. Some have recently moved and are actively seeking a gospel-centered community. We should be ready to welcome them to the team. But many others haven't been to church in a while or ever. Today could determine whether they ever come back. For many, it has taken great courage to come. For some, walking into a church feels as alien as placing a bet at the dog track would for me. They don't know where to sit, what to say, or, what to, or the tunes to our songs. If we neglect the people who walk through our doors on a Sunday, we are failing on the bunny slopes of mission. I was very convicted by that. If you are an insider in the life of Christ, remember the privilege of that place and be someone who is calling outsiders in. Now for you who are not followers of Christ, uh, I know this sounds crazy, but God's family, the church, is the community you were made for. The church, as imperfect as it is, is the community where God dwells by his spirit. And your desire to be connected, to have a community of belonging, those desires are, are true and they point toward this community. So I want to invite you to come in, to be part of God's forever family. And the way you, you come in is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And this means that you trust him to forgive, to cleanse, and to heal you from sin. Remember, all of us fall short in some way of God's requirements. And Jesus is the solution. He's the one who has paid for our sin in his death and then rose to defeat Satan, sin, and death. And through faith in him, we are joined to this new life, a forgiven life, a cleansed life, a healed life. So we put our trust in Jesus to forgive our sin, and then we trust Jesus to lead our life. We, we become followers of Christ, learning from him how to live uh, as he intends. So if you sense God 
calling you today into his family. I encourage you not to ignore that invitation. Today, put your trust in Jesus. And if you want, if you want to understand what that more fully means, then I encourage you to talk with someone today, whether it's a parent, uh, a community group leader, uh, a member of the prayer team, or myself. Uh, there's nothing more important than being connected to Jesus. In just a minute, we're going to come to the communion table together. And this is a family table. And this is not, not a better Sunday for us to celebrate um, uh, the communion today after considering how God has made us to be insiders with Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for what you have done in Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that uh, this is not something that we deserve, uh, but something you desire. Lord, that uh, you took on yourself our sin, that we could be made part of your family forever. Uh, Lord, and what we can say is thank you. Thank you. God, I pray that you would continue to help us uh, not only to receive your mercy, but be conduits of your mercy to this world. Lord, we do long for the divisions that we experience, Lord, to, to be put to death. We know that Christ has ended uh, the, the hostility that so often is experienced and so often we experience. So, Lord, I pray that your peace would rule and reign in our hearts and minds. Thank you for Jesus and what he has done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.